What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. This episode is brought to you by a landlocked naval officer who needed a new hobby outside of drinking snobby IPAs. Thank you, Mark. Yay. All right. Um, and that's the record button. So <laughs> five minutes later, um, I think I'm ready now. Are you ready now? I am, but now I feel like I got to burp a lot. Chugging <laughs> 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 that smoothie. <laughs> this could be a, a fun uh, attempt at going through and trying to talk and not uh, do rude things in the phone. Oh, well. Uh, yeah, oh, well. Okay, so let's start off with some listener questions that we had had. We have two of them, and... The, the first one, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to mention by name directly um, because I don't remember where it is at. Mm-hmm. And uh, But we've had two different questions come in that regarded bee stings and beekeepers developing an allergy to the stings. And so I wanted to go through and kind of address that real quick. So the first one that came in, the the beekeeper was you know, get stung frequently, kind of like any of us do. And most of the time it's on the hands. And from the description, um, usually when they do get stung on the hands, it'll be just a little red spot and it might, you know, obviously it hurts for a, for a minute or two and then it kind of goes away. Um, and then other places where they've been stung, like they'll get like a little bump or a little small welt, but it's not usually that bad. Well, they got stung on their leg and I want to say it was in the thigh area of the leg, and it ended up swelling up to a decent-sized, you know, kind of red welt there, and it it itched for quite a while. And they were concerned, you know, like, do you think that that is the development of an allergic reaction? And if so, what should we necessarily do? And, you know, I went through and I explained that um, a lot of times it has to do with your bodily region that you get stung on, your body chemistry at that exact moment, how much venom actually gets injected into your body because, you know, there's there's proper ways to remove the stinger. You need to scratch it out. You don't want to try to pinch it and pull it out um, because the act of pinching either with your finger or with tweezers actually injects all the venom from the venom sac immediately instead of when you scratch it, it comes out easily um, and you, you get a much less dosage depending on how quickly you can get it out of there. So, but like for me, I get stung on the hands. Um, It leaves the tiniest little red dot, almost like a little red freckle. It's not even like a swollen area. And the little red dot will stay there for several days, but it might itch that day or maybe the next morning just once or twice. And it's usually like, why does my hand itch? And I'm like, oh yeah, I got stung there. Um, If I get stung on the wrist though, it will swell up about the size of like a half dollar. But other places in my body is basically just like a, a pimple. It'll be just a red bump. And then um, my face, different zones of my face react differently. I've been stung in the corner of the mouth. I've been stung in the eyebrow. And I've been stung uh, right near the ear. 
and none of those actually swole or have any type of reaction. I've been stung in the chin a lot, kind of like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, those never really swole or caused a huge reaction either. But I did get stung in the temple area between, like right between the corner of the eye and the, the center of the temple one time. And my whole head swole up. Half of my head swole up. My eye swole shut. It was drastic. But it wasn't an allergic reaction. And, you know, I, I often tell people that when you get stung by a bee, that range of reaction can definitely run the gamut of everything from the tiny little red dot that I'm talking about. Say you get stung on your hand, it can be that tiny little red dot or your entire hand can swell up or your hand can swell all the way up to your elbow or even all the way up to your shoulder. But that is still a normal reaction and it's still localized and connected to the sting site. What the allergic reaction is, is when you get stung on your hand, but other parts of your body develop swelling and rashes. And that is the big key on the actual allergy to it, right? Mm-hmm. So if we switch over here to the other listener question that came in, this one came in from Zach, and Zach is one of our Patreon members. And the only reason that Zach gets a mention and unfortunately the other person doesn't is simply because Zach literally sent this <laughs> like yesterday and I took a screenshot of it and I was like, oh, let's go through and talk about that. Um, the other individual I did actually respond to via email. And so I know I've got it in there somewhere. I just uh, I did not do the show prep that I should have to go back and pull it so I could give a reference. But I apologize for that. Um, so Zach says. Uh, everything's going well over here for the most part. I started listening about a month ago, and I think I've made it through most of the content, and I've got a question that I don't think I've heard addressed yet on the show. In my third year, or I'm in my third year, and I have really started to enjoy beekeeping, but my very last sting resulted in a fairly severe reaction that has never happened in the past. My arm swelled from my hand up to my elbow, and... I had hives develop up and down both arms. So that right there, I'm going to stop in the middle of that. That right there is an indication of a true reaction, a true allergy reaction to it. He got stung on one hand and it swelled up to his elbow. So that part's normal. But then that arm and an arm that was completely unaffected both broke out in rashes. That is your indication that, yes, now there's an allergy going on. So when that occurred... He ended up having to take some Benadryl and then get some low-dose steroid shots to go through and help, and he now has to carry an EpiPen with him, and he's got Benadryl packed in his bag. He says, I'm just wondering what you guys' thoughts are on continuing the hobby, knowing that there is now probably a higher risk of severe reaction to the inevitable next sting. I'll give you the disclaimer now so that you don't have to. I'm not holding you responsible for medical advice, just looking to hear how the thoughts... Sorry, I touched my phone and it moved. How the thoughts of folks that understand why it would be so tough to turn and walk away now when I finally started feeling that I'm getting it. You know, that beekeeping is finally something that I understand and I'm doing well at. It would really suck to turn around and walk away. And I I definitely agree. And I know that we've had other listeners out there that have experienced similar things. And there's other beekeepers out there that have experienced it. And they've had to do the similar sort of reactions too. Um... What are your thoughts on that? If uh, if all of a sudden you started developing an allergy, like a true allergy, and you know you've now got yourself up to to twenty plus hives, um, what what did you th- what do you think? How would you feel? What would you do? 
I'd look over at my son and say, you got just picked up 20 more highs, son. <laughs> Poor Max. Poor Max. Yeah, Max, who I tell you, he just got 20 more high, colonies, Max. <laughs> no. But, uh, yeah, that would be a tough one. Uh, Benadryl, he's got the EpiPen. And uh, they've gone crazy on those, by the way, uh, pricing. Because you, you know, a few years back you get them for nothing, and now they're, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's true. I don't know. His tongue didn't swell up. He can still breathe. You know, it just depends on how much fun he's getting out of it. How what he's getting out of it. Uh, I will tell you what my son says. He says, "Dad, this is my coping, uh, messing with the bees." He says. Uh, Oh, I'll tell y'all a story later on, but not on not on this segment. But uh, uh, this is his seg- You know, this is what he does to cope with everything. Uh, much yeah. like uh, you know our military PTSD. So yeah, that would be a tough one. Uh, I'm you know I'm not gonna tell the guy to quit messing with his bees if he's enjoying them. If he can take care of everything, I believe I would have somebody with me all the time now, though. Now that's a that's a great suggestion actually. In addition to carrying your EpiPen and having Benadryl and things like that, uh, definitely have somebody with you. Uh, then, because it's great to have those things, but if you have a severe allergic reaction and your body starts to lock up or your throat starts to swell shut, and it happens so quickly that maybe you can't get to the EpiPen because you got to pull the EpiPen out. You've got to make sure that the the protective cap is off, and then you've got to jab yourself with it hard to get the needle to actually engage. And there may be situations where maybe you don't make it in time because it's in like you forgot, and it's inside your suit, inside a pocket, and you've got to open your suit up and get to it. So having somebody else there who can assist you and watch out and stuff is absolutely a great idea. Um, one of the other things too is. And this is a just this is a very tiny band aid, but uh, Benadryl makes a gel that acts on site where you can put it on. And if you carry that with you, in addition to the pills that you take, you could actually use the Benadryl gel and put that directly on the sting site as soon as you remove the stinger. That might also help keep it localized and, and minimize the reaction. But if it's allergic reaction that is going to be where your body is going to react widespread throughout your body instead of right at the localized area, then I would say, I mean, yes, if you're if you're in your third year, you're absolutely enjoying it. You can still try and continue, but you have to be so cautious now of everything else that you're doing. So if you're just wearing a veil, then you need to get I, I, I would say regardless if it's just a veil, if it's a veil and a jacket, you need to get a full body suit that is triple layered. And you, you know, even if that means that, well, it's really hot, skip the man, strip down to your skivvies and go out there. If you're in Australia, put on them budgie smugglers <laughs> and put that, put that on underneath your suit and uh, go out there and, and make sure that, you know, you are completely covered. Make sure that your wrists and your ankles are taped and secured so no bee can accidentally get inside your suit with you and you know make sure that you're wearing shoes or boots that come up above your ankles so that the suit can go over them and then you can secure that to the actual shoe 
and have gloves on. Um, wear the nitrile gloves. Yes, they can sting you through the nitrile gloves, but they do not react to the, the nitrile or the, the rubber the same way that they do to leather because leather is still a flesh. It's still a skin of an animal, and they react to that a lot more, and plus that holds a lot of scents and stuff to it. So I would say be highly cautious in addition to your Benadryl and in addition to the EpiPen. Have, like you said, can have somebody there with you and also make sure you are fully covered and protected. There is no shame or anything in doing beekeeping in a full body suit. I only own, I have one veil that is kind of the safari hat veil where you don't have to have anything else on. And then I have full body suits and I've got five of them. And that's mainly because we do removals and you never know what you're going to get into. So I, that's what I bought. And I never bothered to buy just a top or anything else. So when I go out to my apiary to check my bees, I'm in a full body suit. You know, even when I was at home before I had relocated and I had my two original colonies at my house, they were the sweetest bees ever. And I still checked them in a full body suit. And, you know, again, there's, there's no, there's no shame in that. There's no disrespect in making sure that you're protected, especially now if you think that you do have a reaction. Um, and your reaction is is just getting started and it may ebb and flow. And I've seen it go both directions. I've seen people that the the more they get stung, be it like one at a time as they go through doing their beekeeping, the more of a resistance they build up and the less their body reacts. And I've seen it the opposite too, where the more they get stung, the worse the reaction gets. Um, you can have your beekeepers, and we have talked about this before on the show, where they don't have any allergy at all, and they're not predisposed to having an allergy. It's not a genetic trait for them, but something happens. Um, there was a beekeeper who who did it for many, many years, and it was like the love of his life. And one day, he did not have on a suit. He did have on a veil, but he didn't have on a suit. And there was an accident. A high fell over, and hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of bees came out and stung him. And they stung him from head to toe and it was bad and he did have to go to the hospital and, and it was a traumatic experience. But the next time he went back out in the field and he got stung one time, his body reacted the exact same way it had when it had been stung hundreds of times. And, and that is a learned response as opposed to a genetic response. And that's how a lot of times we can develop an allergy too. So uh, is an overdose of something. But yeah, so I mean that I, that does suck. I am definitely sorry to hear that, Zach. And I do think that if you're cautious and you you do things well, um, you might be able to go a long time without having a sting here or there, and you'll be okay with it. And uh, but you know, it's just that thought of the next sting could be even worse. But as long as you're okay you you know you just do the best that you can um i would say that at some point though if you continue to get stung frequently you're going to get really tired of stabbing yourself with an epipen and that could be the defining line where you finally stop and say i can't do this anymore um and again just to uh to go back and echo what he had said here obviously we are not medical professionals um you should not take our advice from a medical standpoint uh, this is just a hypothetical conversation is all. So, um, but yeah, so thank you very much for writing in Zach. I, I appreciate that. And thank you to all of our listeners who have written in with questions, comments, or concerns in regards to bee stings. So, um, you, you mainly have gotten stung in the chin. Uh, I think you have gotten nailed once or twice in the face too, where, uh, 
they like you were back in the truck and and they snuck in there with you um but you haven't really had any stings anywhere else have you around the wrist one time uh, when i was using those little shark cuff gloves and and uh yeah i got stung around the wrist but it wasn't stings it wasn't it was just i could it was just a bunch of bees in there and do they do a little just a little touched or do they well they always just bury that stinger well, when you've got the, this happens a lot of times, especially with like sometimes the thicker gloves or the leather gloves. Um, when we're doing the removals, we call them after stings. Yep. And it's because the bee stings you and the stinger sticks in the leather, or in this case, it could have stuck in the rubber of the glove and then in the material underneath it. Mm-hmm. And that stinger is barbed and the muscular structure on it causes it to slide side to side which makes it burrow deeper into the skin so that it stays. And it, while it's doing that, the venom sac is pumping, right? So it may not have completely punctured the glove, but the longer it stays in there, the deeper it digs, right? Mm-hmm. And then it will just barely nick or scratch you. And you'll feel that initial sharp ouch. Mm-hmm. But then you might brush your hand or something and the stinger comes out or it pulls back away. And you don't really ever have any lasting effect as if you got stung, but you did get just a tiny touch of it. Um, that does occur sometimes. So that may have been what it was, was kind of like a, a ghost sting or an after sting. Um, there are also times where the stinger doesn't, doesn't get enough contact to cause it to pull out. And so the bee can actually like sting you, but then go on. And sometimes that may be through a material or something that it just didn't snag on. Um, but yeah, that can happen. That's a, it's a possibility. Okay. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, most of the time when they sting me, they sting me. I got hit four times in one spot on my chin. You know, when I bend over and that veil pulls up against my chin and they, oh, warm spot, skin. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's done. (laughs) Yeah. And then I swell. No, I, you know, I just swell up right there where the stingers were, but I just take my, I push my thumb up there against the veil and just rake it off with the veil but you know I, that's all i've ever done and uh the one time i got stung you know the guy asked about the thigh i got stung on my thigh uh didn't i was picking up some stuff uh at a apiary and he had bees out there and one of them flew up into my at shorts and then when I crawled in the truck and when I sat down and pulled the shorts up tight, you know, when I moved, well, he said, oh, no, bee, or she said, and she stung me. Now, it took yep. a while for that bee, for that to go down. And the reason I figure is because in the thigh, on so much of it, it was a back part of my thigh, a lot of fat back there. Fat takes a lot longer to get the venom out of, uh, and, and that's why it probably swelled up so big. And it's long because mine swelled and itched for quite a while, but it didn't get real big. I mean, it got a good size, but it did yeah. itch for at least a week or better. Well, I would say in that scenario also – it was a sensitive part of the body, a sensitive part of the skin that's not usually exposed to other things. And it was probably in a location where you could not get the stinger out very easily without smashing it or without it staying there for a while until you could get somewhere where you could get underneath the clothes and get it out of there. So um, so that that's probably why. It was a longer exposure to the stinger and to the venom, and it was in a more sensitive area of the body, so it had a different reaction. That's kind of like my the undersides of my wrists. Yeah. 
they'll uh, they'll do that. I reached back and slapped it and pushed it against me and then pinched her, of course. So all I did was push. I, I killed her, of course, but I also pushed all the venom into me. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's where I'll end there. It was, uh, but it. I didn't have that, you know, it swelled up and itched for a long time, but, uh, oh, well, it's just what you got to do to do what you do. There you go. So we're going to transition here real quick, and we're going to talk about a subject that we normally, well, normally I just preface it with it's the devil or one of the devils, and, and we move on from there. Um, but we're going to talk about YouTube for a minute here, and the devil. there is a... Yeah, it's the devil. Right there with Facebook. Facebook. No. Facebook's the bigger devil, but YouTube is definitely a devil too. Um, no, so we, you know, just to preface real quick, I did a presentation here recently for the Central Texas Beekeepers on social media and virtual things, virtual ways to go through and get beekeeping and education and stuff in this age of COVID where now you can't be in person and you can't go to meetings and you can't have one-on-one -on -one mentorship and stuff. And we talked about things like podcasts and this show and we talked about YouTube and Facebook and finding different websites and forums and blogs and all that fun stuff. And, you know, I did preface multiple times on there, you must be very discerning. You have to take into consideration who the person is that is either posting the content or answering your question, how long have they been keeping bees, what area and region are they in? All of that stuff has to be taken in, into consideration. And that actually applies to me and to the show as well. If you live in, you know, like we, we can do the complete opposite that uh, the, what we really usually experience is most of the beekeeping literature is written from people that are either commercial beekeepers and or also live in northern states where it gets bitter cold. They have feet of snow and it lasts forever. Um, so if you happen to live in one of those northern states, and you're listening to our show and you hear us say, oh, you only need 40 pounds of honey and you don't have to wrap your hives. It's the same concept as us hearing you guys say you need 200 pounds of honey and there must be a foot of insulation around the hive. Um, you have to take into consideration the region and you have to listen to the advice, but then you have to actually apply that to your own situation and scenario. And there may be pieces of it that you do away with and pieces of it that you take and, and adopt into your practice. But it's all based on the source and the knowledge and the experience and everything that comes along with that. So disclaimer out of the way, uh, my mom is uh, addicted to YouTube, which cracks me up. She's in her 70s and she watches the videos. And then most of the time she watches the videos where she can actually like it'll have the text on the screen for her so she can read them. Because I, for the life of me, I can't get her to just put on a pair of headphones and sit and listen to it so she can actually hear it because she doesn't want to disrupt anybody else because she, like, may be in the living room. Um, so she'll have her volume off and she'll read whatever's in the videos. But she'll go, like all of us, she'll get trapped in some of these little uh, rabbit holes where, you know, you started with this video and then it recommended that one and you click this and pretty soon you're, like, 30 videos removed. Mm -hmm. Well, she found a video of uh, a gentleman called Frederick Dunn. And if you guys want to look him up on YouTube, it's Frederick, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K, and his last name is Dunn, D-U-N-N. And Frederick has 82,000, actually almost 83,000 subscribers, and he puts out a series of videos that always start off with the, the something along the lines of Honey Bees Choose. And 
I kind of like the concept and the idea of what he does, but the videos and the, the reason that I really like this one, she sent it over to me and I ended up watching like four of them. Um, he does experiments that are kind of based on the scientific method and he does trial and error and he lets the, the bees themselves choose which thing they like best. And so the, the first one was honeybees choose their favorite water source. You know, do they really care? And it was really kind of cool because he sets up four identical feeders. He's got like these inverted pail feeders that have a front porch kind of ramp on them where the bees can land on it. They can drink, but they can't get submerged in the water and drowned, right? And it, it's it's a really kind of interesting looking thing. There's these little pail buckets with a little yellow pail buckets with a black kind of porch to the front of them. And he puts four of these out. And then for the viewers, he labels what he put in each one of them. Well, for the video on the water, he chose purified water that was done through a pure, P-U-R, pure filter. He chose regular tap water. He chose natural spring-fed pond water. <laughs> and then he chose chlorinated water. And he put all four of those out there. And he left them for a series of days, and he did a time-lapse video where you can see the bees coming and going to the different pails of water and watching the pails. You can see through them, um, so you can see the water levels in them, and you can see which one they're drinking the most of. And in that specific experiment, it ended up being the pure, P-U-R brand, filtered, purified water was what they chose the most. And... It was kind of really interesting because he even said that he really expected the pond water, especially since how it was naturally spring-fed, to be the bigger choice. And it actually, it wasn't. Their least favorite was straight tap water. And the chlorinated water, I think, fell kind of close to that same range as well. So it was really kind of an interesting experiment to go through and do. Now, I will add a counterpoint to this. And that is, it is something that I have talked about. I actually have a uh, presentation that I teach sometimes called the like health and nutrition from the bees perspective. And in that, we talk about how the bees themselves, they're highly intelligent, the colony is highly intelligent, and the colony will actively shift their forage force and what they're looking for based on deficiencies inside the colony. And they've done experiments where they put out different types of pollen substitutes and they start off with one of them that is deficient in several key things that the bee should need. And that's their only choice, so they go to it. But then they go and they add other substitutes that may be high in the specific area that the bees are deficient in. And all of a sudden, the bees will shift and they'll start ignoring the substitutes that are poor quality and they'll start going after the substitutes that have the missing items that they've been deficient in. And so they're very good at adapting, right? So my thing is, one, the spring-fed the, the spring water could have kept the water fresher. And, you know, we think, oh, well, it's spring-fed, so it's fresh, it's clean, it's cool. But at the same time, like, the pond that I had in my backyard was a closed system. It didn't get you know, nice, fresh, cold water constantly added to it every hour of the day. It had its own biodiverse ecosystem going on in there. The plant material breaks down by the bacteria and the other critters that live in there. And then that creates free, available, like not just electrolyte type stuff, but also, you know, you've got vitamins and amino acids and minerals and salts and all this different stuff from that material. So 
it could be that at the time period that he was doing this, they may not have needed some of the other like heavy metals and things that may have been in the pond water. They may have just needed water, right? They may have just been looking for water to cool the hive. And so they, they wanted a pure, clean water. Um, or they were doing well in all their other stuff because there was plenty of pollen and plenty of nectar out there. So they didn't need a supplement for things that they are going to be able to find naturally in the pollen or nectar. That's my thought. And my thought basically is that if he was to repeat this exact same experiment, I think in the water scenario, it would actually change over time based on the season and what the colony needed. I think it would kind of move from container to container based on those, those attributes, right? Now, yeah, so, but he does some other experiments and I think you should look this up because I think you'd find this really interesting. Um, he did one on B supplements and he didn't, he did it more of a true scientific method than he did the first one. Cause the first one, there was no control group. There was just four separate options. Right. Mm -hmm. And he did, he does say that he repeats those experiments multiple times where he changes the position of the, the bail, the barrels, the buckets mm -hmm. to make sure that it's not, Oh, that one's just the closest, or this is where they learn to go. And, you know, still gets the same kind of repeated results. Well, on the honeybee feed one, he got, and I'm going to mention it by name simply because he mentions it by name in his video, and it's labeled on there, so it's not going to be any big secret. He bought Honeybee Healthy, which is a bee feed stimulant. Stimulant meaning that it should stimulate them, right? And one of the things that it does say is it encourages them to take the food, and it stimulates them to raise more brood and to do other things. So it stimulates your colony. Mm -hmm. And you've looked at different types of supplements and things like that and asked, you know, like, well, what if I did the essential oils or what if I did this or what if I bought one of these supplements and put in there? Well, the interesting thing on his experiment with the supplements is he does four containers, mm -hmm. two of them, the one on the far left and one of the ones in the middle are one-to-one -one sugar, or sorry, in his experiment, he did two-to-one sugar syrup. So two parts sugar, one part water. Identical, nothing else to them. Then the second one over and the one on the far right, so every other one is a different thing, right? The second one over and the one on the far right is the exact same mixture plus one tablespoon of Honeybee Healthy. Mm -hmm. So they're all two-to-one sugar syrup solutions, but two of the four have Honeybee Healthy added in it in the exact same quantities. And then he does the time-lapse video. And there are a few bees at all times that are on the honeybee healthy feeders. But there are so many bees on the pure sugar syrup mm -hmm. that it's just a pile of bees. You can't even see the feeding tray anymore. And they drain those suckers so fast and the other barrels are barely moving on their level of content. And I thought, now that is really interesting. That is not something that I would have expected to see when he went through and he did that type of experiment, right? Mm -hmm. It it uh, it kind of caught me off guard. I would have thought that, you know, with the stimulants, and he reads off the ingredients in it. It's got spearmint oil and, and a bunch of other stuff in there, and he reads it all off. Wintergreen and uh, and uh, it doesn't. I don't think it has wintergreen. Didn't have wintergreen. Okay. No, I think it's got spearmint and lemongrass, and uh, then it's got some other things in there. But but yeah. So I mean, but it again, they chose the pure sugar syrup with no additives, no scents, no nothing over the ones with the additives. Mm -hmm. 
And that that was kind of that was interesting to me in that regard. Um, there's one more experiment that I watched specifically, and that one was, do they choose or prefer different types of salt? And he set up four feeding containers, and it was just pure water. But then he added a different type of salt in the same quantity to each of the feeders. And then he went through and he was like, you know, do they prefer Dead Sea salt? Do they prefer Epsons? Do they prefer, you know, whatever, right? Norton, um, all the different things. So they go through and they they set them out there and the bees drank all of them almost at exactly the same speed. <laughs> it was equal all the way across. And they they drank them all the way down. So in that regard, they do need that mineral content that is in the salt and they need some of those other attributes. But one of the theories that was given was that potentially at certain times when they're really trying to dehydrate nectar, they may need some of that salt and some of that other stuff to go through and help the dehydration process. And that was kind of an interesting concept because, you know, you use salt whenever you're going to do curing of a meat or smoking of a meat. So it was kind of an interesting thought. Um, but, and, you know, and I do, when I make my sugar feeds, I do add a tiny, and it's a tiny bit, it's not even as much as he put in there, but I do put a tiny bit of salt in there when I'm boiling the water to dissolve it down into the water. Um, so, yeah, so, but anyhow, again, it's something that I think everybody should go take a look at. Um, it is something that I like. I like his videos. I like how he narrates and talks you through them. I like just the beauty of them in general and the time lapse of it, but I also like that he does a scientific method. He gives you multiple options. He doesn't tell you what he thinks. He lets you literally see what the bees choose. <laughs> That's the best thing right there. It's what the bees choose. And so, uh, yeah, so this episode is going to be the bees choice. <laughs> bees choice. Okay. Yep. But anyhow, um, we are on a tight time schedule today, everyone. I am terribly sorry for that. So that is it. That is all we have for your main segment this Monday. I hope you have enjoyed. And we are going to wrap this bad boy up and uh, get off here. And we will be back with everybody on next Monday for your next main segment. For those of you who are Patreon members, thank you very much again for joining and supporting us there. And you will have a brand new episode coming out on Thursday. Get you a full suit. Don't get stung. EpiPen if you do. Uh, oh. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. But the main thing is be safe, be healthy. And what else, John? Be happy and be good. <laughs> do what you love. Mess with the bees, guys. There you go. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Be safe, be good. Bye-bye. Y'all be good. It's time for our guys to buzz off but don't fret the hive jive journey continues with new episodes mondays every month until then you can follow along with the guys on facebook and instagram at the hive jive thanks for listening and be safe out there